This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Jodie Clark. Jodie was a grey area drinker with no off switch, and after being sober curious for about two years, she set herself a 100-day challenge to initially shift the weight she had gained during lockdown and she hasn't looked back. She's known on Instagram as Sober Flourish, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Thank you so much again for listening to the short ads at the beginning. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the follow button. So welcome, Jodie, to my show, One for the Road. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I'm grateful for you having me. Well, um, you popped up on my Instagram account a few months ago, and I believe it was right at the beginning of your 100 days that you were starting back then. I think it was around the end of August, beginning of September. And what I loved about your account is you were so honest. You've got a certain style about you that I really liked. Um, And honesty is part of my account as well. You know, it's not all, you know, wonderful and great and... You know, there are some tricky times and that's why I wanted to get you on today. And also, you've just celebrated six months of sobriety. And it's it's good to get people on that are relatively at the beginning of um, their journey because it's relatable to a lot of people, you know. So thank you so much for coming on. And as you know, I like to be nosy <laughs> because I see you on uh, Instagram and I know the you now. But I did see a picture the other day of when you were drinking and you, you're you like a different person now. Uh, and that's quite often what people say to me. You know, when they see me 10 years ago, they don't even recognize me, you know. So 
Um, but if we could wind it back to the beginning, um, as far back as you want to go, and it would be really great to hear your story. Yeah, no problem. So I, I would imagine my story is probably quite similar to a lot of people. Um, but if we kind of go back to possibly, but maybe when I when I was born, let's go from there. I won't bore you with all of the details, but I was born in South Africa in 1983. Might sound a little bit strange, and I would love to tell you that I was brought up over there on a safari and it was all wonderful. But we were there because of my biological father's work at the time. He was working on the gold mines. Mum was there with him um, and I came back when I was six months old. So it's not as flamboyant as it could have been. Um, But yeah, we were back at six months old, um, back to the UK. We came back because things didn't work out between between my parents. Um, A couple of years after we moved back to the UK, my mum met my wonderful stepfather now, who's a police officer, and we moved out to the countryside. Um, Quite isolated, I think, probably quite an isolated um, beginning. Um, there was probably only about four kids in the village. So we kind of, any opportunity we got, we couldn't wait to get to one of the local local villages where our friends from school were. So we, they had a, a youth club, I remember, um, that I used to go to when I was around 14, um, maybe 13, 14, I think. Um, and that's um, where we would spend every Tuesday and every Thursday. So that was probably kind of skipping forward quite a lot there, really. But that's probably the first time that I kind of came face to face with alcohol, I would say, around the 13 to 14 mark, where, um, again, very similar to a lot of people's tales, started drinking alcohol. Um, I'll never forget it. It was special red. It was bloody disgusting. But we, we drank it every single time we'd go on a Tuesday and every single time we'd go on a Thursday. So, yeah, that was kind of skipping forward to my first um, kind of experience with alcohol. But, yeah, and I think from from there, it kind of became a, a really big, normal part of my life. I'd, I'd always grown up around alcohol. We'd had There was quite a big presence in my family um, and um, not, not just kind of my, my parents, my my friends' parents, every time we kind of go around, someone had always got a glass of wine on the go. It was very, very normal to be surrounded by alcohol, I think. So, yeah, that then kind of going from, from there, I think that was always very, very normal, nothing really out of the ordinary. And then when I kind of got to about 17, I moved out of home. Um, same time as my brother. My brother moved out as well, and he joined the RAF. A lot of my friends kind of made the path towards university at that point. But I decided that I didn't want to go to university. I dabbled a little bit with sixth form, but it it really, the academic side of things really wasn't for me. So I kind of went full time into work around 17, 18. At that point, I was working at a hotel quite near to where um, the the village where we lived, probably a couple of miles, used to bike there and bike back but quickly realised that there wasn't much point. There was a room there for me. Um, There's no point in biking to and from. So I moved out and I moved into this hotel at 17, which kind of looking back now, I've I've said to you before, if I look back and think, if my eldest now who's coming up to 13 was to tell me in a few years' time that he's moving out into a hotel, kind of alarm bells would go off in my head. But back then, I think, I don't know, we had maybe had a bit more freedom, I think. Not that our parents didn't care, it was just kind of, yep, that's fine. Off you pop, off you pop. We're here if you kind of need us. Um, so I moved into um, I moved into the hotel. There were living quarters there. A lot of um, of Portuguese and Spanish all working there. It was it was fun, but with no eyes on me, and probably quite lonely. I would have thought as well. Kind of living in those quarters when I wasn't working. Nobody drove really at that time either. We were still a lot of them were going off to university. 
so yeah it was quite lonely so I think when I didn't work I was in the bar so this would be a tavern bar so we'd finish our shifts and we'd all leg it over to the tavern bar and sit and drink a few pints after work which to me just seemed completely normal completely normal to go and kind of do that because again I had grown up around a lot of alcohol at night time parents would kind of be sat having a few glasses of wine and it was normal to drink in the house so for me I thought that that was also very normal because that's what everybody was doing again earning a full-time wage living in a hotel what else was I going to spend my money on because all I did was bloody work so mm. it was it was drinking sit, sitting and drinking a few pints of Stella and then as we got older um we would finish a night shift a, a late shift on a Friday we'd all pile into the cars and leg it to Mansfield which is one of the near towns to us and I think that's kind of where my party side started kind of building a little bit of momentum you grew up quite early though didn't you yeah I think so and also if you're in a a place that hasn't got a lot to do um it's boredom drinking for sure um you know and and like you're younger than me but it appears to me that the age of 13 14 is quite a common age group to explore different things And, and I think moving schools like to secondary school you, you kind of start there, you're all nervous and, and you know, all the big boys and girls are there. And, and then you move up the next year yeah. uh, and then you get offered a fag or a can of beer or whatnot, you know. Um, and I think we knew less those days as well. Yeah. So it was all, well, this is what we do. Yeah. You know? So leaving home as well at 17 and getting a job where you, you're living in, with the job with and your friends have all cleared off to uni as well so there's loneliness there yeah there, there's a lot of elements in there why why you did what you did there are there definitely are and then until you kind of have to look back and I, I mean I've looked back many years but I've always been drinking so I don't really like, I don't know you kind of you don't join the dots do you no you don't yeah you absolutely don't and I think to be honest I think when you mentioned school to me and kind of the words that kind of come up to me during school I was I've always been a bit of a people pleaser I've always been a bit of a people pleaser I can even remember like one one thing that I can remember there was a, a girl at school I can remember overhearing a conversation that a girl had about me at school and somebody mentioned my name and she said oh yeah but she tries too hard doesn't she and I'm 40 this year I was about 12 13 then it always always sticks with me so I would do anything to kind of be in with the the, the right crowd of people I'd hate for anybody even now nobody likes to hear people say negative things about them but I have always been a people pleaser and I'm really trying to work on that at the moment yeah through school definitely from not peer pressure I wouldn't say that I ever did anything I necessarily didn't want to do but I mean even again think thinking back to comprehensive in year seven so our first year at comprehensive we'd been there in the September we were coming up to the Valentine's disco and one of our one of the girls in our friendship group had brought in a plastic bottle of brandy that she'd taken from her dad's cupboard, and um, we were all in the girls' toilets, and we were all we were all trying it there. I can re- I can remember that, and we got suspended for that. Our first school disco, we got suspended for it. Um, and I've talked to, I've talked about it before. My my first form tutor gave me a nickname because my maiden name is Jodie Brand. So from then oh, on, the name. whole of my school life, I was Jodie Brandy because we got caught drinking that in the toilets in the first year. So maybe there's always been that that link <laughs> running through. But yeah, through through school, I've always been a bit of a people pleaser, and it definitely escalated throughout school without yeah. a doubt. Without a doubt. So when you started going out, out, yeah. out, yeah, as we say. 
Did you recognise that actually you were drinking more? Were you were drinking faster? Well, I didn't notice when I was out that I was drinking more. And even at the time, I didn't notice it. But looking back, I when I when I moved, so I, I worked in the, in the hotel, but that didn't work out. And I did move home for a period of time. And I would travel on the bus to and from work. I eventually ended up moving in on my own. And when I moved in on my own, that's when I think looking back, the red flag started to kind of pop up that I totally ignored. Because again, it, I, it was just behavior that I was used to seeing. And I would drink red wine on my own in my flat every single night, every night without fail. And that's only been a light bulb moment that I've realized recently. And it's kind of like, do you know when you have kind of one of those epiphanies thinking, I was only 20 20, mm, 21, sat drinking yeah. a bottle of red wine every night. I would finish work and I would go and I would get £10 phone credit, 20 embassy number one and a bottle of red wine. Yeah. And I would neck that and I would get up for work peachy the next morning, yeah. like nothing had happened, which is even more concerning that it didn't even affect me because I've been doing it for so long. But yeah, so that was when I lived on my own, that's definitely when things started to escalate because sorry, when I lived in, on my own in town, because everything was accessible. When I lived in the hotel, we were limited to the bar. When I lived in Retford, in the town, everything was accessible. And I think I've told you before that one of the places that I lived in, the skylight opened up onto a beer garden of one of the pubs that we all love mm. to go to. So I was surrounded by it. And I even remember that my friends, if if they would invite me out on a, on a Friday or a Saturday, and my my answer was no to start off with. They knew to leave it until around about half past nine when she'd have had a bottle of wine and then they'd just turn up and take me out. So that, looking back now, and I'm, again, you do when you become sober, don't you? Start trying to manage the shame and the regret and try and not live in the past and learn that you were under the influence when all of these things kind of happen and practice some compassion, don't you? But that's one of the icky things for me that I think, oh God, I had a name for myself that they knew how to get me out. Just leave it till half nine and she'll be coming out. But yeah, things definitely, definitely escalated there. Um, I would say from around 20 to 24, perhaps, I was definitely had the label of a bit of a party girl. When you uh, sat in your flat alone, mm. was, did, you, did you start to feel depressed or was it just something you did as a reward or, or just basically something you just used to do? Part I just of, used to do it, Dave. I didn't yeah. feel sad or it was just what I did. It was almost like I didn't think I'm doing this in the absence of something else. Yeah. My friend, like I say, it wasn't that I didn't have friends, but we were too young for my friends to be doing anything for me to be jealous of, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't really feel like I was missing out or I'm just choosing this over something else because really, if I look back, I shouldn't have been doing that anyway. I should have just been sat watching TV, getting an early night, or I should have still been at home, to be fair, rather than living on my own. But that's the path that I chose to take, and I'm sure at the time it made perfect sense. Um, and it's nice to have that freedom. And really, if I'd have gone to uni, I'd have been living away from home anyway, wouldn't I? It's only because I think if I put it into context that that, that I lived on my own and I was drinking. I don't know. It's, it's a different behaviour, isn't it? You go to halls and you're allowed to get leathered all the time. You live on your own and you've got a full time job. It takes longer to realise that that's actually problematic, I think. And that's something I've only started to think about more recently. It's quite scary. But it, it puts me in a good it puts me in a good place to kind of try and engineer my children's life that they not engineer their life engineer their start the bit that I can can help with to really try and keep them away from the same path do you mind me asking you don't have to say now how old they are yeah so my youngest is uh, he's five he was yeah. five in September 
Ollie, and then I have Dexter, who is going to be 13 next month. Yeah, that's an impressionable age, right? Yeah. So sure. what you said about your mum and stepdad, you know, drinking and whatnot, it, it was the dumb thing back then. That's learned behaviour for you. Oh, without you know. Yeah. Um, and that comes up quite a lot. It's it's not, you know, people say, oh, my dad's an alcoholic. That's why I'm an alcoholic. Actually, I've looked into this um, and mostly it's learned behavior or something like you might be genetically weak in certain areas. Like for me, um, I have uh, one of my dopamine receptors doesn't work, right? So I'm looking for that constant dopamine hit. So that's why I drank so much so quickly because I'd have one pint and then within two or three minutes, I needed that hit again. So I was a really, really fast drinker. I've got low serotonin levels, low vitamin D levels. All these sort of contribute to um, why we drink the way we do, you know. And learned behaviour is a huge thing. So you're an excellent example now for your son, 13, you know, but for the five-year-old as well, you know, like mummy needs a glass of wine to relax. Mummy needs it, you know, that kind of behaviour. So, so you know, you stopping drinking now is fantastic for your yeah. children as well. I hope so. I really hope so. And 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 Dexter, he, he's, he is definitely, both of them, both of them are, uh, a big reason for me making the choice to to make it a long term decision. Being for Dexter to get to the age where I'd sort of we've got a great relationship. He's fab. He's he's way wise and old beyond his years. But um, sort of hearing me say that I'm going to take a break from drinking alcohol, and then two weeks into the four weeks that because they remember this stuff, don't they? They remember these mm. things. Mum's going to take a break from alcohol for four weeks and he comes in two weeks into the four weeks and I'm sat having a glass of wine and hearing him say, but I thought you said you weren't drinking for four weeks. And that, to some people listening, will think, well, it's, just, it's probably just fallen deaf ears. But for me, that was like a dagger. Like, ugh, yeah. That really got me. Like, I'm, I, in every other element of his life, I'd like to think that he can rely on me, depend on me to be honest, have his back, show up. But I'm actually showing him that I can't even stick to something that I've promised to myself. I mean, what sort of example does that set? Some people might think again that that's quite dramatic, but that really mattered to me. I want to be genuine. I want to be my true self to him and I want to be a bloody good example. And in that, in its in its simplest term, there really kind of really stuck with me. And I thought, you know what? He watches everything I'm doing, everything yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. And he's vocal about it. And the younger one is five and he watches everything I'm doing. You only have to drop an F-bomb once and you hear how quickly they pick it all up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, I really wanted to set a, a better example. Now, Dexter has always, pubs have always been a big part of mine and my husband's lives. I wouldn't say, like I say, in, in, a, in a, saying in an unhealthy way, I look back now and think probably it was, but we weren't in the pub all of the time. But if we went to take the dog for a walk or we went away for the week, pubs would be a huge part of it. And, and nice pubs at that. We'd like to go to it. We would love to go still even now. I'm kind of easing myself back into them gradually because I don't find them as triggering now. But I love I love a country pub with a big fire and a really good roast dinner. And we all we would always that would always have be have a big play a big part, sorry, in when we would go away. We'd go camping. We'd be like, oh, there are any good pubs nearby. So Dexter, even with my mum and dad, when they used to pick him up after school, they would take him out for dinner somewhere. It was that was just it's been so ingrained in his upbringing. I didn't want the same for Ollie. Nothing wrong with going to a pub. 
there's nothing wrong with going to the pub with the, for, for, um, with the kids. But if we went to the pub with the kids on a weekend, it meant we're having four pints. After four pints, I'm not present with the kids anymore. I would I would try my best to be present with the kids. And yeah. Nothing ever would have, ever bad would happen. We'd make sure we were still always able to be present or help them if anything would. Do you know what I'm saying? We would never get in a mess with the kids ever. Well, four pints, Dave. It's still not really responsible parenting, is it? No, no, and it's confusing because I imagine the boundaries change as well, right? Because. You know, like you might have strict boundaries in when you're not drinking. When you are, it's like, oh, of course you can. Oh, mummy, can I have some more quiz? Can I have this? Can I have that? Yeah, of course you can. Can I stay up late tonight? Yeah, of course you can. And then the next night, you're like, no, no, it's seven o'clock. Or what? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Things yeah. change, don't they? Yeah. And then that's confusing. Of course. Um, but moving back, like, like, so going through your journey, my favourite word, um, at what point did you realise that actually – were you were you in trouble, or did you think that um, it's a problem? Where 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 were you with that? I I often try and think: was there a point where I thought enough's enough? Um, and I think if I think about it hard, when we when we had Dexter, we managed to conceive really really quickly. When I got pregnant with him, we decided we were going to try and it happened a lot sooner. Same story for a lot of people. We thought it was going to take ages and it happened very, very quickly. We were very fortunate with him. When we decided we were going to try for another, um, it wasn't as straightforward. And I think we were trying for probably about four or five years. And we ended up going for some investigative, I hate that word, can never say it, investigative um, surgery, I'd say. Um, and I can remember coming around from um, this, this again, it was only minor surgery, um, just to kind of have a look at things and see if things were working as they should do. I can remember coming around and him telling me that we wouldn't be able to have kids without IVF. And I was just completely taken aback by it. I mean, Dexter's birth wasn't the, wasn't the nicest anyway. We ended up um, having to have an emergency section. And, yeah, so we... we 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 were very surprised by that. We were really really surprised, especially how quickly we managed to conceive with Dex. Um, so yeah, we 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 did go down the route of IVF, um, and unfortunately, it didn't work the first time. And I think that that could have possibly been a bit of a, a turning point for me. That I think some people do drink. Sorry, they do link their drinking to trauma, traumatic experiences, don't they? Um, and I don't ever really think I fully recovered from the whole emergency section situation with Dexter because there was a whole thing afterwards as well. And then to try for Ollie and then know we've got to go for IVF and then go through IVF and it not work. And not even just from those sort of obvious things there, the byproduct. And I don't know whether you've ever done it yourself, but for anybody listening, I'm sure there are a lot of people that can kind of relate to this. When you go through IVF, it really changes the dynamics in a relationship. It really, really does change the dynamics in a relationship because what is something that you used to do for fun becomes very clinical and timed and everything's got a reason and it it, it really does change things and it's bloody traumatic. So I think I, I think generally, I think around that time there, I think my drinking definitely increased 
And whereas the first time round with IVF with with Ollie, I was uh, like I was a saint. I didn't eat anything I didn't I shouldn't have done. Um, I, I wasn't drinking. But the second time round, I almost didn't care as much, if that makes sense. I've been through this traumatic experience and I think something shifted in me. I think it had shifted in me. Dale and I weren't as close as that we were um previously and I think that's generally when my my drinking started and the reason why I think it's that is because once Ollie came along because we were fortunate enough that it worked the second time thankfully when Ollie came along you would have thought because he was well all babies are wanted aren't they well we like to think all babies are wanted because we'd wanted him so much because we've been through so much to get him you would think that once he'd arrived that I would be kind of like this perfect mother everything by the book and it was everything by the book whilst I was pregnant but as soon as he got here I didn't breastfeed so I didn't have that I couldn't drink as soon as he got here I was straight on the red wine he was sat in his little Moses basket in the living room so when it it was a time we were kind of doing a bit of sleep training um I remember but I got the wine I had the wine in my hand with a newborn baby tiny tiny baby and I remember being frustrated with the newborn baby because it was interfering with wine time. Mm. And I look back now and I just feel so detached from that person because I can't imagine feeling like that now. So that tiny little newborn baby in the middle of the night when it would need its milk feed, I would then go in after a few hours of crashing, obviously, because you do crash when you've had a red wine, don't you, or any anything to drink in excess. And I'd go in there and that poor little baby would have this mum with this wine breath, this grumpy mum with a wine breath. And I just think, you know, that is the worst. For, for me, I look back and I don't think in any way, shape or form that I was a bad mum. I, I don't think I was a bad mum. My husband often says, Jodie, you're being too hard on yourself. But that's a red flag for me. If that tiny newborn baby, I can't wait a few months before I get back on the red wine. There's, there's something not quite right there. And I don't think it really calmed down from then on. I think so many people relate to that. Mm, it's so sad though, Dave. It is so sad. And it's hard to talk to you briefly about shame before. And I always say, oh yeah, my shame's all bundled up into my, in my 20s because I was a bit of a, 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 a very much of a party girl, et cetera. But it isn't, it, it comes right up to me making the decision to stop because that isn't the person that I would be proud to tell people about. But they're, they're the truths. They're the truths. And I think when... Where I'm at at the moment is I've got to be vulnerable and I want to share those little bits because there will be people that are in a similar situation and just think, oh, God, I thought it was just me. I've been beating myself up. And it isn't. Unfortunately, when you're in a position where you value the alcohol more than other parts, you you haven't got control of that anymore. It's recognising it that's the big part, isn't it? Yeah. And there's the denial, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's when you come out the other side I mean, there's a funny word, denial, because deep down you know that mm, there's a thing. But it, it's the acknowledging of it, which is the thing. And it's when you acknowledge it and you think, do you know what? Things have to change. Yeah. You know, and again, this is why I always hook it into a relationship with someone that has been in your life a long time, but it's not working out now. Things change, people change, environments change. You, Your life changed because you had a second child um and you realized that your drinking was a problem uh, and this is when it changed for you and this you know this is what happens throughout life yeah so what did you do like did you try a few times or yeah I mean I'd like to say that that was kind of a turning point for me because but it didn't at the end because I was still in it I was still in the 
again, it could be denial. It could just be the norm. The It's what I've always done. Coming up for 20 years this year, 20 years lent on the alcohol, mainly at a weekend. But by this point, it was creeping more, more into the week. Um, so again, it probably I, I skip forward now to just the memorable chunks, the memorable red flags that I've kind of been reflecting upon recently was where we kind of, and again, you'll probably hear this a lot um, from, from your, your guests that you have on um, and everybody you speak to in your group. COVID was an absolute monster for so many people. Yeah. Um, COVID here, we've got a two-year-old and this is not a sob story. It's the same sob story that everyone's got during COVID. Everybody had a shit time. Um, and unfortunately, men, women, all, a lot of people lent on the alcohol a hell of a lot more than they did do before. And yeah, so we got a two-year-old at home. Work was manic um, in, in a great sense. We were working on a really rewarding product um, project at the time. Um, but unfortunately, that had crashed and we'd had to relaunch. So COVID had hit. Nobody knew their arse from their elbow. Everybody was drinking more. Um, I've got some rocky personal relationships going off at the time um which were soul destroying really of friendships that I'd had for a huge part of my life there was a, a lot going on um and as I'm sure I'd be really interested to see the kind of rates of people um visiting doctors for antidepressants and anxiety and whatnot at that time in life because I'd imagine they went through the roof um but yes I went um to the doctors to talk about um increasing anxiety and they put me on some antidepressants to kind of help with that and I found that they weren't a good mix. I mean, you don't have to be a medical professional to know that drinking in excess and having antidepressants aren't really a, aren't a good combination. Did they ask you about your drinking when no. you went? No. They didn't. See what they I mean? Didn't. Yeah, they didn't at all. And I think it would be quite easy for me to get a bit uppity about it. But, yeah, they didn't ask Well, I, I, I've talked about my experience with the, when they doubled my dose. I said they're not working, and he and he put me on the double dose of sertraline, right? And he didn't even ask me about my drinking. And if I said, "Look, I'm drinking nearly a litre of vodka a night," things would have been different, you know. There's a real problem with it. But they and that's the thing they're they're putting the they're, they're relying on you there to go in and be honest. And who's honest? Nobody even fills out a form properly. Yeah, but you're not even given the opportunity to be honest if they're not asking you. That's the problem. Not all. Not all. No, they're not. So, yeah, so I um, was drinking more on the medication. I found that I was making an excuse for my husband to go to bed. I'd either cause an argument or, I don't know, encourage him to go off to bed so I could then sit alone, drinking another couple of glasses of wine, eating a load of snacks that I didn't need until the early hours in the morning because that's what I got to a point where I was classing that as me time. Me sitting alone in a room with a candle with Netflix going on. I could never have told you the next day what I'd watched. Drinking more and more, eating, and then mixing and then mixing that with the with the medication that I was on. I got to a point where when I was going to bed at night, I would stand up to leave the room, turn the TV off, and I'd started to fall over. And that happened, I would say, I don't know, a handful of times. One time's enough, isn't it? One time's too many for that to start happening. Because I'd never drank to the point where I'd fall over. I was. My friends would always sort of say to me, I can't even tell you've had a drink, which again, red flag, another alarm bell should go off there because at the end of a night and they can't even tell that I had a drink is not good. But yeah, to get to the point where I'm falling over, um, that was not me. That was absolutely not me. And I knew that. So obviously I'm then sort of to analyse why did that happen? 
Now, it can't possibly have been the fact that you've doubled the volume of alcohol that you're consuming com- in comparison to what you used to. I I immediately blamed the medication. Well, this isn't agreeing with me. So instead of looking at my behaviours and putting any blame at all on our beloved alcohol, I just decided I was going to go cold turkey off the meds, which oh, just completely God. messed me up. Completely I'm messed surprised. me up. So yeah, that again, it, it did get worse before it got better. So I, I don't think I don't think I ever sort of said to my husband, I think I've got a problem with drinking. I do remember there were a few occasions where if I kind of had a drink and then I could only get to like Tuesday or Wednesday, Dale would sort of say to me, having another drink, <laughs> you know, kind of tiptoeing around the issue, but not sort of saying you're drinking too much or um because heaven forbid he could ever question me and my and me and my drinking because you get defensive right it's it's your thing isn't it yeah it's, yeah um so yeah i think he's probably quite afraid to get to bring How it up any other way. Yeah. yeah yeah so um it didn't get to the point where he he would only he'd only need to sort of say that sort of thing and he knew that that, that would kind of probably get my cogs turning mm. um so yeah it definitely definitely got worse before it before it got better um without a doubt so I think, well, I know I started to take, I don't know, a couple of weeks here or there, a couple of weeks of a break from drinking here or there. Yes, you mentioned a picture that I shared on my Instagram. And during this stage as well, which I forgot to mention, is I gained a hell of a lot of weight, a hell of a lot of weight. There's a lot of calories in red wine. And poor food choices. You know, you're saying about the um, the midnight snacking. Yeah. You would think I was auditioning to be Bruce Bogtrotter on Matilda. That's my behaviour that late at night. I would sit and it was gluttonous. It was just no off switch. I wasn't hungry. It was autopilot. And if my husband was awake, still up whilst I was drinking, because I was drinking red wine, I'd obviously get pissed quite quickly. Then I'd need the snacks to make me feel like I needed to sober up a little bit because we've got another couple of hours together watching a movie and I maybe started to hear myself slur a little bit. But I had pride in myself as well. I didn't want to be that slurrer. I didn't want to be, oh, she's pissed again. Oh, she's not making sense. Because it used to make me cringe when I heard other people do that. And I was becoming that person. Yeah. And I knew I, I knew I was. I absolutely was. So I would take the breaks here or there um, to prove to myself probably that I hadn't got a problem. Um, and also to try and chuck a bit of weight off. Because my what I always used to say to people is, if I could just get to my goal weight, I know how to maintain because I eat really well in the week and then I can drink my alcohol at a weekend because I can just stay the same weight. So it was always a bit of a challenge with myself and I would get the bigger chunks of weight off when I wasn't drinking. But because there was never a true reason, like I never admitted I had a problem. It was always, I was putting the the power on something else, if that makes sense. Never lasted, never really ended up getting to the full month or the full three weeks that I wanted to do. But I think the fact that I kept taking regular breaks and I would announce it to all of my friends, I'm taking a break from alcohol and then I'd be back on it again. And um, yeah, so kind of just started to try and try and take a hold of it that way. But it was never meant to be a long term thing ever. The thought of the the thought of doing the rest of my life without alcohol literally used to make the hairs on my neck stand. I wouldn't even almost like it come in my head and I'd wince like I'd physically wince. Then no way. As if, why would I not want to drink when I get older? My husband and I's retirement plans are to be in a camper van from country pub to country pub or beach bar to beach bar. Heaven forbid that there might not be alcohol involved in that. 
how can we go on holiday without beer? How can we go on holiday without finishing the night with a bottle of white wine, red wine in front of a fire? I used to romanticize it so much. And now I kind of, we've got a holiday next, um, next month. We're going to center parks next month. I can't bloody wait to go and not have a drink. I'm excited. I cannot wait to go and have a week where it is all about the kids and alcohol literally has no place for me at all. I can't wait. How about as well, it's all about you as well, you know, Mm. being able to be present for yourself. And and it's incredible the amount of people that I talk to and they use other people in the mix and they leave the last bit of pie for themselves when actually this is all about you and how things have changed for you. You know, it's really important to acknowledge that. Yeah, um, right. So what? So you've now just done over six months, right? And I believe you started with a hundred days, which ties in to you thinking I can't look at this long term forever. Which a lot of people say to me when they come to me for coaching, right? They say I just can't stand it, and it holds me back every single time, right? So we start off with thirty days, right? And we say, look commit to 30 days and we'll learn as much as we can in that 30 days. I'll give you loads of resources, loads of motivation, introduce you to my private Facebook group where there's a community, you know, the power community, but just commit to me for that 30 days. And at the end of it, right, we can assess the situation and nine times out of 10, they don't want to go back to drinking so we say right let's do another 30 days and then we can learn a bit more there and you know like slow progression it's not a race is it right so by you doing the 100 days was probably an achievable target for you yeah Yeah, for sure Uh, before this call actually I found the piece of paper I had a chart and I printed out 100 days and I remember a little bit in the back of my brain you're not going to do that you're never going to get to the end of the end of the hundred days. You won't because I've never achieved, I've never done anything. I've never completed anything like that when I set myself a goal before. But yes, I just I just decided when I got back from my holiday um, that that was it. A oh, good hundred days is going to get a big chunk of weight off, and I and I didn't really have any goal other than not to drink for those hundred days, and I didn't put any pressure on what the outcome was going to be: weight loss, fitness goals. I didn't put any any emphasis on that other than do the 100 days. Do the 100 days and see where you're at at the end of it. You can do anything for 100 days. And I completely engulfed, absorbed every every single bit of quitlet podcast material, normal life stories, um, scientific evidence around ageing, what it does to your brain, what it does to your heart. The, the cancer implications, everything. And I just, I, I completely, in a healthy way, managed to brainwash myself that if I was to pick up another drink, I was doing it knowing far too much and I was going to be an absolute idiot. But it, when I, again, now I, it's only been six months, but if I look back at that first, even just 60, well, 30 to 60 days, it's transformative, isn't it? If you if you're willing to commit, it's transformative. It's almost like you are relearning to be the person you were always meant to be all along. And it is scary, and it is like an emotional roller coaster at times. 
Because especially when you start drinking at such a young age, you've not developed the coping mechanisms. Your brain's not developed enough to know how to deal with these certain situations and how to cope with a, a loss of a friendship or loss of a family member or or anything difficult, losing a job, not making your rent on time. Because all of these things, they trigger these response, these, these emotions in you. And when you've squashed them with alcohol all of this time for 20 years, all of a sudden these things happen or you're challenged, you haven't got a fucking clue how to deal with them no. at all. And it is bloody scary. And especially when you've got children as well at home that you kind of don't want, you don't want them to see the kind of, the, 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 where, where you don't want to see them to see the kind of struggles you're going through getting off it either. But yeah, it is completely and utterly transformative. Completely. Yeah. And, and the thing is there is the more that you go through these emotions. Yeah. And a lot of them are on your own worry, you know, anxiety and worry. It's like, how am I meant to deal with this scenario when I've not had the, the skills all my life since I was 13 to deal with it. And now I'm nearly 40. I wish this was me talking about me that I'm nearly 40, by the way. But, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I've had some uh, things go on in my personal life in the last year or two, right? And it made me think, right, that I haven't dealt with these kind of things mm. sober ever before, you know? And, and all of a sudden I'm presenting... I presented with all these emotions um, and I didn't know how to deal with them. And I'm lucky to have a brilliant therapist and he's helped me along the way. But also there's been a lot of time that I've sat on my own in quiet thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. But the thing is I knew what not to do was drink because that would make things 10 times worse. I'd make bad decisions do silly things uh, and regret them after. So that's what's kept me sober is that I know where I am now. You know, I've got much more space in my head to be able to deal with these things, you know. And you know that, you know that the way you are dealing with them is, is aligned with your true self. It's not something else acting on your behalf. It's not, you're not, you're not, you've not got a veil over you. No. Regret it. Yeah, it's you, and I, I kind of I liken liken that to to me with work, and I often will say there is not a single thing that has not got better for me since I stopped drinking. Um, and I'm I'm very career driven. I'm very passionate about my career, and one of the things um, that has improved dramatically is is my performance at work. And I would I've always been proud in my output at work, which is the reason why I could get away with being riddled with such a hangover on a Monday morning because I was bloody good at my job. Yeah. Which is not it's not a, it's not a good thing, but I think a lot of people get into that trap as well because they are seen on the outside to have all their shit together. Mm. They take so they take even longer to to realize they've got a problem because they're not messing up at work. They're showing up, they're performing, they're successful. Um, but for for me, things like um, my Monday morning meetings, we have a Monday morning meeting um, every week to discuss the trade from the week before. And um, there's a lot there's a lot of um, senior leadership on that call. And every Monday morning I would wake up and I would have three o'clock pang of anxiety. I would be absolutely shitting myself about the meeting. I'd have the roll call going through the running through my head of the day ahead. Uh, I've got to get the kids ready. You've got to get back, have some coffee, get some carbs. And you make sure you've had something fatty because you've got a hangover. Um, make sure you've got your face on, you've washed your hair. So you look, do you know what I mean? All of this would be going through my hair, head at 4 a.m. in the morning. 
because on the Sunday, I promised myself I wasn't going to go overboard. I'd got pissed, woken up, done the same thing, shame, doom, self-pity, regret, um, every single Monday morning. And then it takes you till probably Wednesday to really sort your shit out, doesn't it? And then you're back on it again on a Friday night. So from a work perspective, for me, my productivity is through the roof. And it's not necessarily that I'm doing more work. I think I've got more confidence in myself when I'm talking um, because I'm not second guessing myself. Like you said there, I'm not I'm not hungover. So everything I say is is coming from me. Does that make sense? hundred um, percent. I mean, the whole Monday thing for me, I mean, I used to drink every day. But there were days that I would, my moderation was having something left in the litre bottle of vodka, you know, and I, I used to know exactly what point of that litre of vodka that actually I think I'll be all right today. And it's probably more than a bottle of vodka, you know, but at the weekends, I've said before, I would binge from Friday about three, four o'clock to, to Sunday night until I passed out. So I was completely poisoned. I hadn't seen or spoken to anyone all weekend. And I would go to work Monday feeling like absolute hell. Um, and I do get what you say about the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday thing. Because you have a couple of days off. I didn't. But most people that work with me do. You know, my clients and that. And they say, you know, I seem to be able to go Monday and Tuesday. But by Wednesday, you start to justify that you've had two days off. So you haven't got a problem or you're feeling better. And, oh, just one tonight on a Wednesday, right? But you end up drinking the bottle. And then Thursday, oh, I drank last night. I start again Monday. You know, and that's the whole hamster wheel over Every and over week. and over and over again. Yeah. Forever. Uh, and it it's just like... And it's the exhausting. Biggest, yeah, it's it exhausting. is. Because even when you're not drinking, Dave, you're, oh, you, you're just thinking about it. Mm. You're thinking about it all the time because we're ingrained to think about it all the time. And even if we're not, we just turn the TV on or we turn the radio on. I mean, even my son, my eldest, Dex, has started to roll his eyes on a Saturday morning because at 9am... You've got the radio presenters talking about how hanging they are. They're all hungover. And he kind of looks at me and like rolls his eyes now because he knows that that's it's just bonkers. You have a watershed at night time. No one's allowed to swear before 9 a.m. But yet, sorry, 9 p.m. But 9 a.m. in the morning is perfectly fine to talk about how wasted you were the night before when you're showing up to work. I mean, that's the example we're giving to people, aren't they? We're showing up to work and we're talking to the nation about how wasted we were last night and how hungover we are today. Well, not only that, it's accepted. If you went into work on a Monday morning and said, oh, my God, I, I had smoked so much crack yesterday, I feel terrible. Or they, they would look at you like you, you would. But, oh, God, um, we went to the pub lunchtime yesterday and it went on till six and I had a bit of wine. Like, oh, my God, what am I? Oh, what are you like, Jodie? Honestly, you're a girl, you are. Ha, 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 ha. But anything else, and you'd be fired, right? And and the other thing about the 9am that really does my head in is um, these cooking pro Saturday morning cooking programmes, right? And they're all pouring the wine at 9.30 in the morning, all laughing and whatever. And it's like, it, it's t- honestly, don't I, had get to, me uh, I feel like I went through a bit of a grieving pro- process with the those programmes because I bloody used to love that. Sunday brunch, Saturday kitchen. I can't watch them anymore because they just piss me off. Yeah, well, I wants yeah. to be plugging all that wine at that time in the morning. I used to really love those programs, but no, it isn't. It's not a good example. It's horrendous. Um, but I know in your podcast, I listened to your podcast with Janie um, just now, and 
the passion she has and everybody shares that everybody shares that it is just mm. everywhere isn't it you know what's lovely about that podcast right is um obviously that's episode one of my new episodes coming out right and uh, i think on the podcast she said she's right on the cusp of stopping well she's actually stopped now fabulous and today um obviously not today when this is aired but today the 15th of march when we're recording it she's meeting 40 friends in london and they're all drinking and she's not oh good on her and and it's it's just fact, I love hearing things like that, that all these little seeds are planted, you know, over the months. And this is for anyone listening and relating to you, because I think you've given a brilliant interview, Jodie. There are things there that you've said that will tick boxes for, for people, right? And it will make them think, God, that's me, that is. You know, that's me, that's me, that's me. And that will plant a seed and that seed can grow if you wore it correctly, right? And this is how lives change for people because you're the example, Jane is the example, you know, that you can change your life when you think you can't get off that hamster wheel. You can, but at first you need to be willing to explore what that looks like. And that might be 30 days off. That might be what you said, 100 days off, but you have to start somewhere. But doing it with a positive attitude to see what is at the end of it, and then go from there. So it's not like, oh, well, that's it. It's over forever. Because before you know it, you're back. You know, it can be too much for people sometimes. So it's finding your way, isn't it, that you feel you can do it. Yeah, it is. And like I said before, it, it, this was never meant to be a long-term thing for me. Never meant to be a long-term thing for me. And it is It is. everybody's journey is different. Everybody's experience is different. I just think I was well overdue. I think I was well overdue. Everything seemed to align and this is my time. And I will never, and Yana, I hear you saying, you said um, when you kind of closed off your last season um, for the podcast that you're in a different place now. You hit your four years and you're in a different place now. You kind of, the drinking thing, it's not, it, it's not a thing. It's not even a thing. It's not in here anymore. You, you kind of don't have to have that battle of to not have a drink because you genuinely don't want one. I don't want to drink. I feel now already, and again, this could change. There may be people kind of listening and think that are quite cynical. It's only been six months. Give it time. And I've had people message me, and I don't find it helpful. Sort of said, well, you're doing really well, but some people have slipped off it at six years, and some people slipped off it at five years. Well, okay, that's that's their story. I'm kind of just going to choose to kind of stay in my lane and focus on what I'm doing now. You know, like I've I've had a really good friend of mine slip after 15, but he's Yes, but his circumstances are really, really difficult. And how is that helpful, right? I had someone who's quite well known in the sober community, which obviously I'm not going to mention who it is, but I reached 10, 11 months or something. And they said to me, oh, you're just a baby. You're just right at the beginning. You've got a long way to go there. You've got, you know, 10 years before you can start. It's like, that does not help me at all. I'm really, really proud. So when you said it's only six months, right, I was going to pull you up on that. You usually do. You usually do. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, remove the only, because uh, right on day one, if I said, look, you're going to get six months, you go, really? You know, it's that's not useful for your own 
it isn't uh, mind, right? But when I was told that by this person who's avid AA, right, and they and they said to me, you know, you've got to be at least ten years sober before you can start. No, no, I can be who I want to be, right? I believe in positive thinking. That's why I don't go down the whole recovery route. You're going to be recovering alcoholic for the rest of your life. That doesn't work for me because that really suppresses me. Mine, the whole discovery thing is right. I've removed the alcohol now. Right. And now I can explore what is in my life without alcohol. So it's like getting out of a narcissistic relationship. Um, and now I'm free to live my life. Right. And get as much out of it as I can. That works for me. That's the positive take I, you know, I have on my sobriety. Um, and what you said is true. It's the what works for you is bespoke to every individual. Completely. No. no one's got the same shit going on. Nobody. No. Has. Some people love AA because they they love routine. And that's you know, they love the yeah the yeah. the uh, two three meetings a day. Some people to go and that that's great. Yeah. You know, but that doesn't work for, for me because <laughs> yeah. But I I you know I like to do it my way. You like to do it your way, and that's absolutely fine. And the good thing is, um, there's so much out there now. You know, sober coaches, I'm a grey area drinking coach. There's other mindset coaches. Um, there's groups, Facebook groups. You know, there's events on now. There, there are so many things out there. Um, wonderful quick-lit books, one for the roads one. Ha! Sorry. <laughs> I, I thought I'd throw that one in. But um, So now what does your future look like? What What are you looking forward to? You've got your holiday. Have. We've got, yeah, so we've got our holiday uh, next month, which will be my first sober holiday. You'll love it, honestly. Really you will love it. Um, and then we're renovating the house this year, renovating the house, which will be wonderful. Um, so, yeah, just just looking forward to, I mean, I'm almost at 200 days now. So my first 100 days, I've almost doubled that now, which is great. Um, so, yeah, just kind of just focusing on not um, – not looking back so much now, Dave, I think, and trying to kind of package that up and tie a hypothetical bow around it and send it off yeah. down the river and just focus on the future um, more. And, yeah, just just continue on the path that I'm on, really. It's, it, it, I've got no regrets, no regrets whatsoever. Nothing hasn't got better. And I'm just hoping that I'm kind of giving the boys a bit of a, a bit more of a choice than I feel that I had. And, again, there's never any blame laying. Um, I think everybody, um, everybody, well, I, I certainly, certainly grew up the same way a lot of my friends grew up. Um, there's a lot of alcohol around. There still is now. It's, it's horrendous, but it's giving them a choice. So they're not going to grow up with alcohol around them all the time. And I just, if they end up drinking when they're older, fine. But just to give them a choice that it isn't something that they need to do all the time to have a good time, to to use to suppress grief, every emotion, every party. Um, yeah, just hopefully just continue doing a bit of a good example. Yeah, I love that. I, I did a talk in a school and, and the biggest takeout, um, the feedback I got was you do not have to get pissed to have a good time. You don't. And, you know, at that influential age of when you were 13, 14, me as well, 
that's what we think we have to do. But things have changed. There's so much more out there. And this is why you're the perfect example. And I believe Dale doesn't really drink that much as well. You know, he's a take it or leave it. Bastard. Um, but, um, you know, um, it's, you know, they've got two good role models there that um, they can look up to. And, you know, this holiday in Centre Park, Centre Park is full of activities, isn't it? And you imagine, yeah. right, that, that holiday would be completely dominated by drinking hours, how you'd feel in the morning. Oh, well, let's not do that. Let's just chill out. And there's a thing, oh, I don't know, I've never been, but whether there's entertainment in the evening, you know, oh, let's go up there and have, um, you know, a load of chips and, what you know, the bad food. Tour. It, your holiday will be completely different. And when you come back, you will feel complete. I've had about five or six now sober holidays and you actually come back thinking i've had a holiday rather than, yeah rather, rather than need i need one. another holiday <laughs> to get over that holiday do you know what i mean yeah definitely so uh, jody it's been an absolute joy to have you on i've loved it dave yeah it's been really wonderful and i i have so much respect for you and thank you for being a guest on my show today you've really been wonderful Thanks for having me. See you soon. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon. And you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.